I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome to the Portrait of a Lady on Fire podcast. I'm Steph Watts, and this is an hour of audio swooning brought to you by Curzon at the film that has had critics declaring undying love and using fire emojis more than any other before it. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Set in the 18th century, it's a story of women, art, women's art, and a fiery romance that burns between artist and subject. The film is the fourth directorial effort from French director Céline Sciamma, and we're going to be investigating some fascinating things about it. We'll be looking at the provocative and timely stories Siama has told already. 100,000 children watched it before a right-wing contingent started to get nervous about it and think of it as indoctrination. Why being a working artist in the 18th century was so important for women? To say, why is marriage the inevitable destiny? What it's actually like to have to paint someone's portrait for hours on end, especially when they're a film director. Who can say they've watched Ridley Scott's favourite film with him? And... What does Celine Siama herself think about all of this? It's not about me giving up on power, it's about what do you do with your power and how do you share it. Celine Siama is undoubtedly one of the most important European directors working today. Since her debut film Water Lilies in 2007, she has produced quiet revolutions on screen, telling stories that are rarely told and doing so in groundbreaking ways challenging conceptions of sexuality, gender, identity and love. Last year, having recently won the Queer Palm and the Best Screenplay Prizes at Cannes Film Festival, Portrait of a Lady on Fire had become one of the most anticipated films at the BFI London Film Festival. Director of festivals for the BFI, Trisha Tuttle, told us why Siamma's films are so important, as well as taking us on a journey through all of her work up to this point. First of all though, who is Celine Siamma? Celine Siama is a French uh, filmmaker. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is her fourth feature film. Her first feature film was 2007 Beautiful Water Lilies, uh, which was actually written, um, she went to La Famille, the famous um, French uh, film school, where she studied as a screenwriter. 
and she wrote the script for Water Lilies as her graduation project, not necessarily intending to direct it, but on graduation she was encouraged um, by Xavier Beauvoir, who was one of the tutors, to make the film herself. And within six months after graduating, she raised the finance and found herself making the film, um, went on to play in, in certain regard at Cannes, did very well um, and really started to make her name and thank goodness she's discovered that she also wants to direct so that was her 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 first film you know she started as a literature student so she's incredibly well read and she when she talks about work that's influenced her she as often as you know, not talks about um, writers who've been a big influence. So Simone de Beauvoir was a massive influence on her. She referenced in terms of her inspiration for Water Lilies, One is Not Born a Woman but Becomes One. Um, and I think her first three films are very much about the act of becoming um, who you are going to be. And she is also, like, spent her youth, I think, retreating into the cinema. She talks about discovering um, movies as a 13-year-old and used to take herself off um, to see films, um, coming of French coming-of-age films. She talks about Nomi Lovsky, Pilar. I mean, she, I think, is very loves, loves cinema, but also um, watches a wide range of international cinema as well. When we see someone's first film, we have no idea where their career will take them. What directions a mere freshman flourishes compared to long-standing themes reflected throughout a body of work? When we look back on the debut from a director, we often see their first tango with the ideas that will come to define their filmography. You can see in that first film, Water Lilies, preoccupations that you see throughout her whole work. Um, the act of looking is very big. Um, gender presentation is very big. What it means to be a woman um, is a, is something that, a theme that she keeps coming back to again and again. Um, but Water Lilies is a is a really interesting film. It's her only film shot on celluloid, shot on 35mm, and um, working with a female cinematographer, which she's done on all four of her feature films. And it's not just female cinematographers that Siama works with on her films. Behind the camera, her crews are full of female creativity. Portrait of a Lady on Fire sees Claire Maton as cinematographer, Christelle Barra as casting director, Dorothée Guiraud as costume designer, and Véronique Kaila and Benedict Couvre as producers. And that's just a small number of the female collaborators Siama has brought to all her projects, starting with her debut, Water Lilies. Um, it's a film about a young girl, and uh, she's talked about it as being partly autobiographical, young girl in suburbs outside of Paris who become, is quite starting to question her own sexuality, it happens by chance on a synchronised swimming um, practice and becomes really um, obsessed with uh, synchronised swimming uh, as a sort of beautiful sport that she wasn't aware of, but also um, becomes really interested in the captain of the swim team who is um, played by Adele Hanel, uh, a character called Flo and um, the, the main character, Marie, um, becomes fascinated with her and um, is 
through her interest in in Florian starts to question her own sexuality. But it's such an interesting film, um, not just about a sort of teenage, emergence of teenage sexuality and the sort of changing period of being a teenager, but it's also the first film where you really see this interest in gender construction um, and the central metaphor of the film is such an interesting metaphor. Um, Synchronised swimming is a sport almost exclusively played by women um they're you know in in france it's it's a sort of female only um sport and it is an activity where the body presents very differently above the water than it does under the water it's a a, a sport where women have to be poised and beautiful and um and underneath the water their legs are working furiously to keep them um above the water and selena has also spoken about watching some of this and women sort of leave the pool and have to throw up because it's so intense to have to do it. But it's that's such a beautiful, simple metaphor for what she was trying to explore in the film. And those ideas begin to cross over into her next film, Tomboy, which continues to question gender expectations through the lens of a younger character and in a style that is accessible to viewers of the same age. Tomboy, um, her second feature, 2011, um, is set in the world of children um there are you know there's very little interaction with adults in the film there's a a mother who plays a a small part in the film but it really is like lots of her films it's a hermetically sealed world for the characters to sort of interact with each other and this is a the world of children um and uh, the central character is a a character called Lara who um presents as Mikkel she takes the opportunity of moving to a new town to start to explore her gender and project um, herself as as a as a, a young boy called Mikkel um, and of course passes um, and it's about gender performance like water lilies and in, in a different kind of way the film um, was presented to young children in France and it was actually used in schools as a way to talk about gender and identity. Um, apparently, you know, 100,000 100, children watched it before um, a sort of right-wing uh, contingent started to get nervous about it and think of it as indoctrination, so uh, sort of stopped that from happening. But it's a film that, you know, that children can and and do watch and actually I watched it with my son when um when it came out as well too and he really really loved it and it made him think a lot about the presentation of gender in actually it was made in 2011 very progressive um very ahead of its time in lots of ways we're talking a lot more about non-binary identity and transgender um identity and that in 2011 was um something that sh- she was exploring out uh, ahead of uh, the cultural conversation around it after tomboy comes girlhood the third in siama's coming of age trilogy that began her career this film deservedly brought her talents further into the spotlight and gave every audience member a newfound love of Rihanna's diamonds. It marks a clear development on the way to her latest film as well. Girlhood is, um, I think, moving her more towards Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where she is being very precise in the way she wants to structure her film and tell her story and tell her story in sort of bite-sized pieces. So in Girlhood, it is um, a film set in five chapters and each one is very different. It's also her only film that she's shot in Cinemascope. It's a beautiful, um, big, wide screen film where characters move across the screen and the screen pans across many characters. Four central characters in the film it's a film about um, a, 
a young woman in the suburbs of Paris who is starting to discover who she is um, and she meets a group of friends that she becomes very tight with um, and through that friendship uh, starts to discover more about her own identity. It's also a film probably more than any of her other films until Portrait that is about looking um, and the act of representation. There's a beautiful scene that everybody knows from girlhood, um, which is set to um, Rihanna's Diamonds. And uh, the film structurally moves the viewer um, through different positions of looking. Um, we start with um, the one of the main characters, Lady, dancing by herself in the frame. Um, and then the, uh, several of the other girls join her in the frame. Vic, the main character, is still watching them. And then Vic joins. And the moment Vic joins, the sound changes so that she enters um, the frame in such a sort of beautiful, considered way. Um, and I think she was starting to test ideas around the filmic gaze um, in girlhood that you can really see fully developed in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The gaze is pivotal to all of Siama's work. Her films place us as both the viewer and viewed, but never has it been more pronounced than in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The film is set in late 18th century France. Painter Marianne, played by Noémie Melon, is commissioned by an affluent countess to paint the wedding portrait of her sheltered but headstrong daughter Eloise, in the hope that it will find her a wealthy husband. Eloise is played by Adèle Hanel, who appeared in Siama's debut Water Lilies as well. Eloise refuses to sit for the portrait, so while posing as her hired companion, Marianne is instructed to complete the portrait in secret, observing Eloise by day and painting her by night. However, as the two women grow closer, their intimacy and attraction begins to blossom, paving the way for a simmering, sensual, exquisite romance. Whilst we might know the awkwardness of posing, or waiting for someone to pose for a hopefully flattering Instagram photo... The filter of a real portrait painting is a far more artistic, time-consuming and intimate process than a quick phone swipe. But what is it like today to actually commission and produce a portrait? Artists, I remember sitting in on the commission, um, Shirin Neshat made a portrait of Malala for us and I, I was there for the commission and, and, the, and the shoot. This is Lucy Dalson. Lucy worked at the National Portrait Gallery for five years where she was the curator of contemporary portraiture. And it, com- it was very interesting um, being there for the sitting um, and watching the dynamic between Malala and Shirin. Mm. And then seeing the final portrait completely it was completely different because it was seen from Sheeran's perspective, not mine. And again, mm. we come back to that idea of thinking about the objective, mm. what a portraiture should look like. I always get quite a lot of an adrenaline during the sitting. It's like you're going into an exam or something. And, you... and this is Nina May Fowler. Nina and Lucy met when the National Portrait Gallery commissioned Nina to produce a collection of portraits of British film directors. Mm. And then you come out and you think, what just happened? You yeah. know? Or you read that essay later that you wrote in the exam and you think, I don't even know how I... Where that, that came out. from, yeah. yeah. After each of the sittings, I I felt this huge sort of adrenaline rush sort of seep out of me, and and then I'd take all the information back to my studio and just digest it. And you know, that's that's the time when you really just you've got to do your best by the sitter, yeah. And and for the commissioner as well. And it's like you said, um, as you are in the position of you know making making the project happen. I actually thought the mother in the film was quite relaxed you know because I've done a lot of portrait commissions and actually to be given those five days 
to just get on with the work when yeah. she went off to Italy yeah. and said, I'll be back in five days. I thought, well, yeah, that's at least she's not sort of asking for progress reports and, yeah. you know, checking up every evening on how it's do doing. It. <laughs> but it can be. Nina's exhibition comprised eight portraits. Amma Asante, Paul Greengrass, Asif Kapadia, Ken Loach, Sam Mendes, Nick Park, Joe Wright and Sir Ridley Scott. It was a long process um, deciding on the list of sitters. We wanted it to be current, um, so you had a lot of patience. (laughs) In a project that would take over five years to complete, Nina travelled the world to meet a carefully compiled list of directors who would sit for a collection titled Luminary Drawings. I had this horrible realisation in the film that we are, I am the Comptess. (laughs) And um, the kind of... Um, I guess the role of the gallery um, mm. is it's it's quite difficult because you you come up with the ideas mm. and you're there to facilitate and support the artist and sitter, but then it's really really important that you let creative processes happen because yeah. it's got to come from a person, hasn't mm. it? You know, and I think that's really beautiful what you're saying about how the film directors. Um, trusted you, let Mm. you do it. Just like Marianne in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Nina travelled alone to visit each of the sitters. It was a real challenge for me technically because I wanted to make them in charcoal because I wanted to get that intense black of the cinema. Nina's known for her large-scale portraits that interrogate themes of celebrity, beauty, power and sexuality. A perfect match for film directors, really. I ended up um, coming up with the idea of Uh, having a little portable cinema because I knew that I'd have to travel to a lot of the directors and some of them I only had about 30 minutes with. So to capture someone in that small time frame, um, you know, for forever, you know, they're going to be in in the archive of the museum. (laughs) They need real longevity, it's hard. Um, So I had this idea that I'd arrive to wherever they were, um, whether it was Shepparton Studios or New York I had to go to or... Cotswolds or I, I did travel a lot I would I would arrive with this little portable cinema which I would set up so all the lighting everything was the same and the director would have previously chosen a film of great importance to them so that could have been anything and I and I made it very clear that that film choice would never be revealed um, for a couple of reasons mainly because like you mentioned I wanted to keep the mystery the beauty for me of that idea was I knew the directors were going to get lost within five minutes um, because the film that they all chose, well, they all chose a, a different film, although I will I will tell you that two of them chose the same film, not giving too much away, but... Um, wow. <laughs> um, the f- because the film was of such importance to them, it's, it's, it's the same as anyone. What, you know, we all know that film that changed our life or affected um, the way we thought about something or affected what we want to do in life or um, or just a film that we really love to watch yeah. and a film that we really get lost in. So I arrived with my little cinema, I would project the film of their choice. And in many instances, they hadn't seen the film for years as well, mm-hmm. because again, in, in life, when do you get the time to revisit all your favourite films? It's hard. So... I would put on their film and luckily within about five minutes they were all totally engrossed mm. by the film and they were lit only by the light of the the screen, the reflected mm. light. Um, so I, I, I had the setup where I would film them 
watching the film. So, and I was also sketching as well, which was quite difficult because it was dark. Mm. Um, so I was sort of sketching blindly, but that was okay because in that is- instance, the reason for sketching really is just to observe mm. their face. And I always find you can take as many pictures as you want, but it's not until you actually start drawing and looking, drawing from life, yeah. that you really start observing um, how someone's face works and is you know the shapes and the tones and so I spent the time drawing they spent the time watching and I think they all forgot that I was there they they all were um you know so enraptured by watching their the the film some a lot of them uh, 80% of them decided to stay for the whole film which was lovely because gave you you a bit more time (laughs) gave me more time um and you know some of them cancelled meetings because they were enjoying the film so much they said I just want to stay here and I, I had I had a little sort of picnic for them as well popcorn and drinks and and a comfy chair and so they were sort of in heaven I think and you know they and each one of them after the sitting said thank you for giving me this time you know in the in the middle of a very busy day a week or whatever they they said this has just been such a break it remains a secret Nina stayed true to her promise but while we can't know what they picked we do get a little insight. Something that I was um, really interested in was you talking about the reasons that different directors picked the mm. different films that they did. And I think you said that Sally Potter picked a film consciously thinking about how she would react to mm. that film. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? Thinking about Portrait of a Lady and why we're here mm. again talking about portraiture and contemporary commissioning and film. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's this tension between um, taking agency the, the subject of the portrait taking agency and how they want to be represented um, mm-hmm. and that was really interesting to me thinking that um, she didn't well I don't know if it was her favorite film you know that but um, thinking very consciously about what her reaction to that film would be yeah. well it makes a huge difference I have to say when you're portraying creatives mm-hmm. creative people because they tend to a give you benefit of the doubt because they understand um from you know being a creative person that you're probably going to get better results from someone creative if you're not um too stringent with guidelines yeah um so I was very fortunate that they were all very um relaxed about letting me do what I wanted basically um I mean I assume they all looked at my work and had some degree of faith that I was going to do an okay job um but as you said it was it was very interesting how Sally Potter as a creative person almost projected herself onto my position Mm. as the artist and thought about what I was going to see and what she was going to um you know what how she was going to come across and react so she said she chose one film to begin with but she changed her mind because in that film she knew she was going to laugh too much and it made her feel really happy and celebratory yeah and she didn't she didn't necessarily want her portrait um to to be like that um so she ended up choosing a film that moved her really deeply um and she's she was there for the whole film and that was the other wonderful thing about this commission was that I got to watch the films with these incredible directors you know which is I mean who can say they've watched you know uh, 
Ridley Scott's favorite film with him, you know, and Sally Potter or Amorous Anti. Oh yeah, um, you know, <laughs> had a great time because they talked all the yeah. way through. You know, there was it wasn't it wasn't strict in the in that they had to sit still. Amazing. Which um, so she yeah she she really I mean she was she was the most sort of reactive Sally Potter and she has a history of performance. She's a dancer. Um, and she, by the end, I was just mesmerized watching her because she was really moved, deeply moved by the end of this film. Um, and she was one of the hardest because I had, I had so many wonderful images of her to choose Mm. from. And when she saw her portrait, I decided to use her hands in the portrait. Um, and when she saw the drawing for the first time, she decided to wait until she saw it in the museum, not look at pictures of it. Um, so she she saw it and I was with her. And she um, she said that her hands really reminded her of her grandma's hands in a really positive way. She's She says you, you never see your hands from that angle. You know, you only ever see your hands looking down at them. Of course. Unless they're in a photograph. But she'd never seen her hands from the angle I drew them. And she was really stunned at how much they looked like her grandmother's hands. And that brought her a real feeling of happy nostalgia. Um, yeah. And that was a lovely thing to hear. And, and Amma Asante as well, she commented that looking at her portrait, she felt like she felt like she did when she was a small girl. It reminded her of herself at sort of age four or five, sitting on her father's lap. Oh, amazing! Um, so you know, obviously these lovely, strong, strong reactions to the yeah. to the portraits. Um, it was a huge compliment to me. So the sitter is a performer. A portrait artist might observe more than they direct, but regardless, they still elicit a performance from their subject. How does this process translate in cinema? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Celine has talked about the fact that she told her characters where to exhale, um, you know, on a line of dialogue. She knew how many steps that or they together decided how many steps they would move through a scene. Um, It's a two-hour film nearly, but it's 69 scenes, um, which are very precisely structured. She actually worked on the film. um, It took five years from girlhood to um, the making of this film. um, And you can see that kind of thought and consideration. Although Marianne might be the artist we see on screen, we can't help but think of the film as an artwork from Siama using her own tools of looking to examine the nature of viewership within artistic practice. What does the film have to say about that gaze? It's a film that interrogates the act of looking from both 
the looker and the person who's being looked at. There's a great scene in the middle of the film where um, Eloise discovers, has has discovered that she's being painted um, and she forces Marianne to start a new painting that she's actually going to sit for um, to make it more truthful and to allow her personality to come out more in the film. And um, after hours of sitting, Marianne says, I wouldn't want to be in your... I don't envy you having to be in this position. And Eloise turns to her and says, but you're in exactly the same position that I am. Who do you imagine that I look at all day when you watch me? Um, And it's such a beautiful scene which turns the sort of passive um, subject, the idea of the passive passive subject totally on its head there's so many moments where um, we're invited to look and she invites us to look by um, doing startling things within the frame there's quite a few scenes where a character um, is in in a frame and another character moves behind them and you realize that it's more than one person and that the sort of self-consciousness of that or the the sort of constructedness of that asks us to step back and pay attention to who we're being looked at and how we're being asked to look. I think my favorite scene from the film, which is actually two scenes put together and I didn't, I don't think I've breathed the entire time was the sequence that starts with um, the all of the women around the campfire um, and uh, Marianne and Eloise are looking at each other across the fire and Eloise's dress goes on fire it's the sort of central image of the film it's the film it's the painting image that opens the film and takes us back um, to this moment and and Eloise, instead of panicking because her dress is on fire, looks down at her dress and falls on the ground. And you don't, you really, you don't breathe at all. And then the next scene you see is the two of them on the beach, and um, they are have they they can't speak because they've got uh, scarves around their mouth. Um, and it is just a breathlessly beautiful scene about looking and the two characters having looked at each other now really allowing each other to look and see each other at the same time. For a film that really only has three principal cast members set in a remote location, there really is so much going on and just so many fascinating conversations that have sprung from it. It's about um, the erasure of uh, female artists, writers, painters... Um, filmmakers and the the fact that um, women have been erased from these sort of cultural and creative histories also means that certain stories have been erased. Talking about not being allowed to paint male figures as a female painter because it's it's not allowed and it's yeah. I think she says it's to stop women making great art yeah. um, that they're not allowed to paint men but then in this whole film you're seeing women creating art all the time they're creating yeah. music, you even have uh, Sophie the maid kind of embroidering these beautiful uh, patterns onto cloth and there's just always kind of women creating mm. things even when for the time they're not technically kind of allowed to yeah. allowed to make great art This is something that came up as well when we were doing the commission for the MPG because we obviously wanted to represent women um, in the series of portraits, um, but it also needed to be representative of, um, you know, the The film industry industry at the same time. So I was very aware of um, 
you know there being a good balance of of women in in the series um and it being reflective of reality exactly much like all other aspects of work portrait art mostly saw women sidelined but centuries ago for a minority portraiture could be that rare thing established work for women the big problem for women as well as the big opportunity for women one of them in the 18th century which is marriage to tell us more about what women's art would have been like during the 18th century we spoke to jenny bachelor professor of 18th century studies at the university of kent jenny has written extensively on women's writing women's work and the craft and history of the dress well i mean the film is very much about it's about it's about memory and remembering and about forgetting and, and and how both of things happen how we remember and how we forget and of course that's really important in terms of when we think back about 18th century women artists because there were a very good number of them and yet many are not popularly very well known today which is a great shame the situation at the time broadly speaking was that all women of a certain class, sort of middle class and upwards, were expected to have some kind of competency in drawing, you know, drawing like being able to run a household or being able to dance or play music. You know, these were all accomplishments that were expected of, of women of, of those classes at the time. But of course, to be a professional artist is a very, very different um, proposition. And it is open to a good number of women, but but a very exceptional group of women. And they're exceptional for a number of reasons. Then, then the, the women from that period who did become very successful portrait painters across Europe, so I'm thinking about people like um, Elizabeth Vigie-Lebrun in France, who was, uh, amongst other things, uh, a very popular portrait painter, particularly of portraits of the Queen Marie Antoinette in France, or the Swiss-born Angelica Kaufmann, who was like a Europe-wide sensation and, uh, and uh, one of the founding members of the Royal Academy in London, one of two women out of a very many more men who were founding members of the Royal Academy at the time. These women were exceptional for, for a number of reasons. One, they had some exceptional opportunities. Um, in both, both those women had fathers who were involved in the art world, although actually neither of them as successful as their daughters would become. Um, they also had access to certain kinds of networks. That's really important uh, for women enter, trying to enter into to the, the, to the profession of art in this period, to have access to networks of individuals, both for training, um, but also to have opportunities to exhibit your work and so forth. So, you know, you could have all the talent in the world, but if you didn't have some of those opportunities, then it, it really wasn't going to take you very far. Um, having patrons, people who would help advance your cause was really important too. But even so, there were still barriers. So even some of the most successful women artists of this time, and this is something that is picked up on in the film, you know, can't really engage, aren't really able to produce work in certain genres. So history painting, for example, is, is very much a kind of masculine artistic form in this period, although actually Angelica Kaufman did do some history paintings. But there's all sorts of prejudices against women artists in this period, even, even those who were very celebrated. So, for instance, um, one, of the, one of the key problems, and Marianne talks about this in the film, is that women aren't supposed to have the kind of access to training in drawing male anatomy for instance they can't they can't they can't um be taught how to how to how to draw bodies in sort of in 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 sessions where they have a, a male sitter and that's a big problem particularly for history painting i mean kaufman um got around that problem by using sculpture as a kind of proxy for 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 the male body that enabled her then to to produce those kind of art so there were there were real challenges and 
other artists, even though they were very famous, you know, female artists when their work was when their work was exhibited, it was subject to a kind of scrutiny or certain kinds of criticisms that you know just wouldn't really usually be levelled against their male contemporaries. So, Vichy de Brun, for instance, was famously um, metaphorically wrapped on the knuckles for having portraits of women who were smiling. God forbid women should smile in a portrait, and, and, and really, God forbid, that they should actually show their teeth, um, which indeed some of her uh, portrait sitters do, and her, one of her self-portraits does as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a really complicated situation. It, it's, these are, these are, there are some exceptional women in this period, a good number of them, um, who were very talented, who were very influential and widely celebrated, it's 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 a travesty that they're not better known popularly today, but but I guess that's one of the things that this movie is about. Really, is trying to retrieve that those memories and 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 celebrate them again. Um, but it's also true that you know those women were exceptional, be- and because they had exceptional obstacles to overcome. The artist in Portrait of a Lady on Fire is Marianne, whose lifestyle runs against the grain of the typical roles for women, particularly ones we're used to seeing in period films. She's a bit of a loose cannon. Would they really have been a Marianne at that time? There are certainly characters in the in the literature of the period who question the destinies of those other women that you that you talk about. I mean, given her situation, service is not really an option. She wouldn't have been a servant unless something dreadful happened to her, although that does happen in 18th century novels sometimes. Families fall on hard times and women are forced into service. But really her only other her only other option it would have been would have been to accept, to accept marriage and to live not the life of a professional artist. But yes, there are there are absolutely women in in novels of, of this time who question the fact that marriage is the automatic destiny for marriage and motherhood are the automatic destinies for women. So she is a loose cannon. One of the reasons why she's a loose cannon is that it's not just that she rejects that alternative, but she looks to a profession as the alternative to marriage. The fact that she seeks to carve out a life for herself through her life as an artist, that I think is somewhat distinctive at, at this particular time because traditionally, Almost all of the professions, apart from art, are inaccessible to women. Medicine, the law, obviously the church, they're not available to women. So really the only profession at this time which is technically available to women, albeit with all sorts of obstacles in their way, is art. Um, and her desire to pursue that is, is absolutely distinctive, I think. But I think her general, the, the kind of the, the, the ambition and the, the questions that that are posed by the way she chooses to live her life are absolutely of a keeping with, with, with novels of the time and, and, and certain women who were, who were starting ever more insistently in the latter part of the 18th century to say, why is marriage the inevitable destiny for women like me? And what about 18th century LGBTQ stories? Well, of course, I mean, the language is totally different. They, 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 they can't refer to gay relationships. Queer has a very different meaning in this period and they don't talk about lesbianism either. But absolutely, um, same-sex bonds between women are celebrated in novels of this time in ways that we might retrospectively read as gay or queer relationships. Um, one of the things that really struck me about the film, and I wondered whether uh, this was somehow in the, in the minds of the filmmakers as, the, as, as they were coming up with the story, is there are a number of novels, particularly in the, in the sort of 1790s, so a bit later than this film, that try to imagine what life might be like for women in the absence of men. A world without men? For 95% of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that certainly is the case. 
perhaps a world without men is something that Siama pondered when putting the film together. Maybe it's time that we actually heard from the director herself. Well, I wanted to to make a film uh, dedicated to a love story. We spoke to her after a screening at the London Film Festival last year, starting at the very beginning with the importance behind the title of the film. wanted to mix um, a love dialogue with a creative dialogue and thought about that relationship between the model and the artist. Um, and, you know, the title uh, came pretty early in the process, which actually like came in like a flash. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Portrait d'une jeune fille en feu. Uh, and then the images came also. Like, okay, this is not a metaphor. We are going, really going to set fire to the character. And I think it, it talks a lot about the film. Um, it's not only poet, you know, poetic ideas. It's yeah. about embodying and about being very, very generous and creating new images. How does Portrait of a Lady on Fire bring modern politics to a period setting and vice versa? Yeah, the movie will definitely be something that, you know, will uh, is said in 2019. Yet I really didn't want to wink at the past from the present or wink at the present from the past it's really not anachronistic at all um, I did a lot of research we all did the whole thing regarding the sets the costumes and also the lives and the, 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 the work of this women painter um, that's actually why I picked this particular moment of the 18th century second half of the 18th century because there were hundreds of women painter at the time uh, was totally ignorant of that and when I encountered that reality and their body of work definitely gave the urge uh, to to set the movie at that time because stories that haven't been told that definitely belong to the present um, yet really it is not anachronistic at all and I feel like w the bridges the transmission that there is between these past women and the women of today is mostly like there's I think the intimacy it's the same. I think, you know, even though these women were oppressed and couldn't get the opportunity to be, I don't know, artists and, and to love who they want to love, um, still, you know, it's not because you're not allowed to run that you don't want to run. It's not because you're not allowed to love that you don't have this crazy desire for, for somebody. And so I think this is, yeah, some, some of it is still, a lot of it is still true regarding the intimacy. We've heard from Nina May Fowler about the relationship between artist and subject. And in the film, the portrait itself becomes a collaborative piece between Marianne and Eloise. What was the collaboration process between Siama and Adele and Noemi, who play those characters? Um, well, yeah, the, the movies really wanted to, to get rid of this idea of the muse, with this silent, fetishized woman being inspiring just because she's beautiful. Uh, Actually, being the model was kind of the only opportunity the women were given to be in the workshop um, and to create art. Uh, and they seized that opportunity. Uh, they were one of the brain in the room. And uh, we have this mythology of the greatest artist expressing himself. Um, but um, 
which I think is not totally is not true to the actual process. Uh, you know, I've I've heard of Dora Maar. She was uh, the muse of Picasso. She was one of the founder of the Surrealists. She was maybe the most gifted, um, and uh, and we we weren't told that. What was the collaboration process between Siama and her lead actors Adela Noemi? We, I mean, the movie talks about this and the collaboration between the model and the painter, and obviously we work the same way. Um, it's not about you know. Cinema is a very, uh, there's a lot of hierarchy and obviously the director is the boss, you have a lot of power, but it's not about me giving up on power, it's about what do you do with your power and how do you share it. Um, so we have had very, very strong collaborative relationship, also with the DP, Claire Maton, director of photography, a very horizontal gaze, a lot of circulation, and you know, even the fact that the movie is so uh, meta in, in a way, I would look at Adele, Noemi would look at how I look at Adele to perform the painter and, you know, Claire Maton would look at Noemi looking at Adele and it was also really fun and joyful because we were fully aware of that circulation. Um, and I think movies look, look a lot like the way they are made and so you, you know, you can totally feel this, uh, the type of collaboration we have. Like Rihanna in Girlhood, there is one song that has captured people's hearts again in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the presto from Summer in Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Celine Siama has said that it's much cheaper to get Vivaldi than it is Rihanna. But more importantly, how does the sound in the film affect the stillness and intensity of the images? That, that was a decision that I took very, very early on in the process of writing to make a film without music. It's a decision you have to take because then it's going to influence the writing because it's not the same rhythm. You won't leave room for the music and the, the, you, the film has to find its melody, its musicality elsewhere. So you have to think a lot about that because then you have to think about the sound. Um, it wasn't. It was a challenge because you know love stories, of course, are always about the soundtrack. You know, we can play the game where you know, I'll be telling you a movie and you'll you'll go with the soundtrack, like uh, Dirty Dancing, Time of My Life. But it wasn't about that being challenging. You know, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not trying to put traps for myself. It's just it was mostly about the reconstitution. I wanted to put the audience in the same position as the character. Mm. Um, and they're missing beauty, they're missing art in their life. And the film is also about how love is an education to the arts and how art is also consoling. And so if the audience would hear a score when they would actually lack music in their life, that would, that, that would be uh, um, devastating, I think. <laughs> and also wanted to connect the people to... Yeah, that the, when music and beauty burst, it's 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 yeah, it's um, we believe strongly in music and cinema. That's why when this time we decided not to put much, so that the emotion would be the biggest. As well as that Vivaldi track, there's another moment that is striking for its musical accompaniment, performed by a group of women around a bonfire. Yeah, we we decided to to compose uh, this original song. Like, um, I wanted to, I mean, I've, I've done research about, you know, this, the melodies at the time and some of the songs we're still singing to our children when we have some. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> um, but really wanted to create this anthem for the film that would totally belong um, 
and also that you know also that could maybe become an anthem for something else uh, in life um, and so I wanted polyphonia polyrhythmy and no instruments just the voice and the bodies of these women and it's the actual composer of all the music of my film Parawan who crafted it with a uh, Arthur Simonini and it was the idea was that it, it, it should be a thrant, a trance so that they, they, the BPMs would have to be very, very, very high. And as well as creating a musical track that's a trance, Siama ultimately made a film that's a trance, beguiling and beautiful and one rich in images that will stick long in the mind of anyone who watches it, and one that raises so perfectly the value and importance of women's art. The film is trying to question what we value about women's activities, women's art, women's aspirations now and in the past. And that's and, and that's something that comes through very well. You know, women's art, women's craft has, has historically not been valued or even talked about in the same vocabulary that we tend to talk about, about, about men's artistic and, and creative and, and craft um, sort of achievements. And that's something this film is really asking us to think about. Why is that the case? Why should that be the case? So if you're wondering what film you should watch next, don't let another beautiful piece of women's art go undervalued. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is out in cinemas and on Curzon Home Cinema now, and you should watch it as soon as possible. Big thanks to all our guests this week. The podcast was edited by Mark Towers and produced by Ryan Hewitt. Louisa Maycock provided additional research. The show was produced and written by Jake Cunningham and written and hosted by Steph Watts. That's me. If you have seen the film or enjoyed the podcast and are now thinking where you can get your next 18th century fix, there's still so much more to explore outside the frame. Well, I guess people who are watching this film might want to start with with, with the, the visual images from the period and the portraiture. I mean, I would just, if, if this film encourages people today to get more interested in women artists from the period, then that would be one very good outcome as far as I'm concerned. So if you're living in London, you don't have to go very far. Go to any one of the galleries in London and you're, gonna, you're going to find the work of women artists who you may not be familiar with. I particularly would encourage people to check out Angelica Kaufman, who was Swiss but spent most of her, um, uh, well, a good deal of her working life actually in London and was a founder member of the Royal Academy in 1768. Um, her paintings are very like Marianne's in all sorts of ways, not just in terms of um, style but in terms of theme, so I would definitely check her out. I'd also really encourage people to check out the literature of the period because I think if people are surprised by some of, some of the things in this film, they're going to be surprised by some of the 18th century novels that t- speak to the same issues. Um, in the course of our conversation, Mary Wollstonecraft's name has come up a few times and I think she would be a very good place to start. If you think people aren't really concerned about what we now recognise as feminism in the 18th century, th- then you'd be quickly corrected by looking at Mary Wollstonecraft's work, particularly her Vindication of the Rights of Women, in which, amongst many other things, she totally rips apart Rousseau, who she really admires, but whose characterisation of Sophie in Emile she found deeply misogynist and, si- and just absolutely symptomatic of all that was wrong with the way that women were objectified in 18th century society. And of course, you know, that's one of the things that this film is challenging us to think about is women's objectification both in the 18th century and now.